from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. So, I, um, I, we don't have a, a set series of questions. We're going to fake this as we go along. But I'd like each of the people we're about to interview to give us a little bio of their interest in the issue and their experience with it, and we can spring off of that. Um, my name is Michelle Hedman. I'm a mother and just a general human rights activist. I became interested in this issue about uh, four years ago, and I've been an activist ever since. Um, it was just rather personal interest, um, not so much job interest, but just things that I noticed, you know, through friends and experience um, talking to other people. And that's what led me to educate myself. <laughs> my name is Katia Delaquilla, and I'm a local midwife. Um, I became an inactivist when I was pregnant with my daughter. I didn't know what gender she was going to be, and so I started doing my research. and. Um, I think I was always kind of a common sense inactivist because when I figured out what it was, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I deal with it a lot in my own practice um, with parents and seeing the decisions they make. So I'm lucky enough or blessed enough to be in a position where um, I can talk to them early and I can talk to them often. Excellent. Brennan? <clears throat> my name is Brendan Murata. I'm a documentary filmmaker and for the past I want to say five months now, I've been working on a feature-length film on the topic of circumcision, which is why we're here filming today. Uh, the issue of circumcision is something that I became aware of after I relived a certain portion of the trauma during a meditation in Los Angeles. And since then, I started researching, started educating myself, and uh, through that, you know, started talking to friends, and that's kind of how the documentary project came about. And since then, we have talked to many of the presenters in this room and uh, interviewed them on camera and uh, I've had the opportunity to learn a great deal about this issue and uh, sort of face some of my own trauma through it. Thanks. So <clears throat> would you like to ask a few questions there, co-chair? Yeah, sure. I just would like you each to share what the most difficult thing about being an intactivist is or maybe just what the most difficult thing about the fact that circumcision still exists in our culture, and if you could pick the most difficult thing, and then if you want to, you can share a triumph, and what and what keeps you going against the the difficulties. I think the most difficult thing is just the defensiveness when you try and talk to somebody about it. I mostly talk to, you know, adult men rather than parents, so. Um, they bring a lot of defensiveness, you know, when you first try and approach the topic, they've been led to believe one thing, and, you know, they're not really willing to listen to other uh, information. And, it, you know, it's kind of scary when you're dealing with that because you don't know if that person is, you know, somewhat traumatized or if they just are embedded in their beliefs. And, I mean, that, that can be a hard thing to get past, but, um, I mean, a triumph, I think that... I have helped a lot of parents. It wasn't my intention in the beginning, but a lot of people have listened and gone on to tell other parents as well. So, um, I mean, I think 
uh, I know a lot of people have told me that they would never do it in the future to future children, you know, even if they aren't parents right now. And um, that's been exciting. <laughs> Feels good. Yeah. Um, I think that um, one of the most difficult things is when um, the maternal bond is severed with the baby and also when women tend to put it off as the father's decision because that kind of begins that breakage in, in their bond, you know, because they um, silence is agreement and in being silent about it and letting the decision be the father's, they're not listening to their own maternal instincts um, to protect their baby. So I think that's the hardest part. And the most difficult situations have been um, people that I have talked to and that do it anyway, and I see their babies after the fact, um, because there's a difference when I, when I meet them when they're born and when I meet them after they've been circumcised. There's a huge difference. I think the most difficult thing, th excuse me, I think the most difficult thing for me is bringing the subject up with people and talking about it. And the best thing for me has been bringing the subject up and talking about it. So it's because it's, it's a little paradoxical because on the one hand, um, for me, I bring a lot of, you know, personal experiences I've had around it and a lot of my own sort of emotional things that I'm working through. And at the same time, um, and I'm, I'm not sure, you know, when I bring it up socially, what the reaction is going to be. Um, and it ranges from, you know, extreme defensiveness to like, right on, like I would never do that to my child. Um, and for me, since I'm working on a film, it comes up very casually because people will be like, oh, what are you working on? It's like, well, I'm working on this documentary film. And they're like, oh, what's it about? And they think they're asking like a casual conversational question. <laughs> and they don't realize what, the, you know, they've just opened the topic of genital mutilation. Um, and that they've essentially asked, what is the matrix and can you hand me the red pill? And so I think that, that to me, like talking about it in social situations is a bit difficult. But at the same time, you know, when I initially started researching the subject and having feelings come up around it, um, I felt like I was the only one who had ever felt this way. And I couldn't, you know, there was no, no frame of reference I had. And in going around the country and interviewing intactivists and even in my own initial research, I've realized there's a lot of people who, you know, have questioned this practice and, and feel strongly against it and have dealt with a lot of the same things. And so whereas before I felt sort of uh, isolated and, and like there wasn't anyone else who, who sort of dealt with the same thing, now I know that there's like a huge network of people that are working on this and that I can turn to and that I can talk with. Um, so I'd say, you know, just talking about it with people has been both the, the worst and the best thing. We were joking in England this summer about how if you're a committed intactivist, you should be able to get to the subject in one step from any other subject. <laughs> so sometimes at quiet moments in medical conventions when no one is visiting our booth, we'll practice this game, you know. We'll, we'll say tennis or Pacific Ocean or anything and, and see who can do it. So I, I, I urge you to give that a try. Is it? The other thing I have to say, the other thing, the other thing I have to say is you will soon find out who your real friends are. Yeah. And, you'll, and you'll shed some marginal friends that you probably could have done without anyway if they can't handle your passion for the issue. So yeah, thanks for a good try. I had a, a question I want to ask you. Anecdotally, we hear, uh, all of you actually, anecdotally we hear that um, single mothers who give birth without the father present for one reason or the other don't circumcise as much as mothers who, are, who have a partner who's circumcised. Does that meet your experience, your clinical experiences? Um. I, I was a single mom when I had when I was pregnant with my daughter, 
And so, um, so you're your own committee and your own veto. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but at the same time, her dad did have input. Like he was, he was trying to convince me because he didn't know if it was a boy or girl. He was trying to um, convince me to go to New York, where we're from, and schedule the circumcision and everything with his family. Um, and I did my research, and he had less weight on my decision. So I guess that that could be true because even if I had a son, I wouldn't have done it, even though he really was passionate about getting it done. It was a family tradition of his. Um, it was something that he believed was right and a million other reasons. But there was nothing on earth that would convince me to do it after I saw what a circumcision was from, for myself. So I guess that's true. Have you lost um, close friends or how have you dealt with it when a person really, really close to you has the information and does it anyway? Have you maintained that friendship, maintained that relationship? What did you do? Um, I have lost a few close family members um, who, it was more or less them choosing not to talk to me anymore. Um, <laughs> not so much, you know, that I didn't want to talk to them. Um, I haven't lost any friends, though. It seems like it's kind of a personal issue, so... Um, your family gets offended when you don't agree, whereas your friends can kind of deal with it and move on. I haven't, I haven't lost any friendships or any relationships for it, um, but I, I, I had clients, uh, specifically one client that, that was close to me and was my friend, and she did it anyway. And because she knew how adamant I was about it and because she knew how I felt about it, I think that that's kind of why we drifted. Like, we never really spoke after she did it. We spoke um, up until she had the circumcision done, and then after she had it done, I didn't hear from her again. Um, I don't think I've lost any friends over it. I will never go back to my family doctor again after talking about it with him, <laughs> um, who wasn't the person who was there at the hospital when I was born. Um, but I don't know. When I, when I initially started researching the topic, I just assumed it was an issue of that people didn't have the information. Um, so I sent him some stuff and had a conversation with him about it. Um, and initially, like, I'd gone to him earlier because, because I'd said, you know, uh, I, I feel like the sensitivity I've had is not what it used to be. Um, you know, and I, for some reason, I just had this intuition that it might have something to do with circumcision. And he said, oh, no, 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 that's perfectly fine. Like, if there's anything wrong with that practice, it would have gone away years ago. And uh, so, you know, then I started doing my own research, and I, I sent him some stuff later, and it was just like, it could have just gone in one ear and out the other, and it was just like, it, it, it's like he couldn't hear me. I don't know how else to put it. Um, and I've noticed this with certain people, when you bring the issue up, they say, well, what about, you know, you know, there's problems, and sometimes you have to do it, or there's HIV, and it's like, you didn't hear me. You're taking a knife to a child's genitals, and that's going to have an impact later on. And it's insane to think that that pain isn't going to have a psychological effect of some kind. Um, but, you know, there's this sort of like shields and, and programming that people have against it. And, and a lot of those sort of one-line pros, I guess, that parents are presented with or those, uh, those, those so-called health benefits are, are ways that you don't have to actually confront the, the vulnerability of the child and the way people feel. Um, so I think that... The, that's sort of what I've, what I've noticed in talking about people, uh, or talking about this with people, is, is that, and it's not so much that someone will, will lose a friendship, but they just won't engage. That, that for whatever reason, like, I don't want to talk about it, I don't want to go there, um, that's, too, that's too much for me to handle. Um, but at the same time, I would say, you know, that there are a lot of people who, you know, when I tell them I'm working on a documentary on this subject, inevitably, 
you know, a few minutes into the conversation, they'll start to say, you know, I've never told anyone this, or I've always felt this way, or um, this might be too much information. And there's personal stories that start coming out that, that people have not shared or have not felt like it was okay to share. And so I would say that on the, on the one hand, there's some people who won't engage. There's others who will share a side of themselves that wouldn't come out otherwise. So I've kind of found the opposite effect uh, in certain, certain relationships and certain friendships. Uh, with that in mind, I mean, my, I, I guess my experience is that there's a whole range of reasons you could use to oppose circumcision and to educate people. But um, obviously some might appeal to men and some might appeal more to women. So the, the three of you, this is a question for the three of you, what is your experience with the arguments that seem to work best? I mean, you probably have a 90-second elevator pitch, right? And you probably have a 10-minute mini-lecture, and then you have the 45-minute ear beater, I, I assume. <laughs> So what works for you? For me, I actually, I try and deal with the sexual function um, more than really talking about the surgery itself. That really seems to hit home for a lot of people. Uh, they can relate to it uh, in their relationship, different side effects that it might cause. And it really gives them the feel that this body part has a purpose and there's no point in just cutting it off without thinking. It really gets people going and looking for their own research. I've tried multiple approaches with, with my clients, and um, one, one of the things that actually works for me is skipping past the, the side effects and the religion and everything else, and just saying they can get it done when they're adults uh, with better medications that can provide better pain relief, and it'll be their choice. And it's almost like people don't know that their baby could get it done themselves when they get older, you know, if they choose to. And so I think that just putting that into light makes them realize that A, the baby is a human and has a right to choose, and B, it's, it's not going anywhere, you know, it'll be fine, they can get it done in the future. And that has actually made people stop immediately, I, like that's all I needed to say, and the conversation didn't even go on after that. So, it was, it, and I had a dad actually tell me, oh, I never, I never even thought of that, yeah, he can get it done when he's older, that's fine. And that was it. Um, since I'm not, not an activist, uh, I don't have as much experience um, you know, trying to convince people of things. But I find that, that when I bring up the subject, there's certain um, tidbits or things that I found that make people curious and interested and want to talk more about it. Because um, the arguments against circumcision, to me, are, are sort of very simple in common sense. It's traumatic, it reduces sexual sensitivity, and it violates the child's right to his own body. And those are, you know, I mean, you can say those in one sentence, and it's very clear um, what, you know, what's going on. Um, but a lot of the time, the, you know, like I said, people don't want to engage. And so I find that I will just sort of, I'll mention things that I've, I've got heard during interviews. Like, you know, you know, like I interviewed one guy who can have five orgasms in five minutes just touching parts of his foreskin he would not have if he was circumcised. And you, you tell someone that, and they're like, okay, hold on. What, what? <laughs> I'm curious about this. Um, or, you know, I mentioned that I interviewed a woman who was circumcised in America by the American medical system, and that used to be legal, too. Or I'll mention, um, you know, that I interviewed a, that, that you can actually restore your foreskin. There's methods of trying to grow that part of your body back. That it's not complete, but you can get some of that back. And so, you, you know, I just find I tell them certain things about research that I've found that... Uh, make them want to engage a little bit more. Or even that so there are people who remember their circumcision or have done that in psychological therapy. Um, 
So I, I just sort of, I, I say things that won't make them want to talk about it more is kind of the goal that I have. What do you, what do you hope? What do you hope to see like in the next year, or the next five years? What do you think is going to happen? Oh, do you th I mean, we see the monster tipping, I think, tipping over. We're chopping off a head at a time. <laughs> and um, what do you think is the biggest, um, where should we concentrate? And what do you see happening in the next year, five years? Um, I actually, I, I think that just all the people who are out there, you know, even if they're not doing a lot, but they're just talking to one friend, you know, knowledge spreads. And it's kind of a pay it forward, you know, if you talk to one person and that person talks to two people, it spreads very quickly. And I've seen that a lot just in the few years that I've been talking to people. And um, I, I think that'll continue to happen. I think it'll just get bigger and bigger and, you know, eventually will halt completely. And I think, you know, education is the key to really getting it to come to an end. I hope, I hope for it to be eradicated completely in, in my lifetime and hopefully soon. Mm -hmm. um, what I see happening in the next few years is just that because there's been so much of a push forward um, and there's so much accessibility to information now. And I think that's key, the fact that we can just log onto our phones and, and Google it and get a million different articles, you know. I think that people are becoming more intelligent and are starting to uh, figure out how to read studies and I think that's also helpful. Um, and yeah, and so I guess basically just passing on the knowledge, I think it's going to stop soon. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I have a friend who likes to say that the odds are always 50-50. Um, either it will happen or it won't. So you know, I, I remember I, we interviewed William Stoll, who's a, a man who sued over his newborn infant circumcision. And one of the things he talked about was, you know, there was a spread in the Saturday Evening Post, like in the 80s, that had a lot of the photos that you might have seen today of just, you know, babies screaming in pain and the, the, during the circumcision. And he said a lot of intactivists at the time thought that that would be the end of it, like that when that came out, people would get the message and they'd see it. Um, and, you know, then that didn't happen. And then they thought, you know, maybe, you know, when Whose Bodies, Whose Rights came out or when uh, the San Francisco ballot initiative thing took off. Um, and I, also, I don't know what the tipping point will be. It seems like it takes a certain number of impressions of this message for someone to get it. And I know for me personally, I had heard the intactivist message and like run across some of those websites before I had my own epiphany. And I, similar to some of the people I've talked to, like I couldn't engage that. It just was like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. So I kind of don't want to know or I don't want to, it's just like it doesn't, I, you know, I just didn't want to go there the same as people I've talked to. So I don't, I think it's going to be different for each person at what point that they're ready to confront that and, and examine it because there has to be, you know, you know, the moment you see, you see the harm this does, there's going to be an emotional response and a certain healing process that people have to go through. And that's different for each person. So I have no idea at what point the culture as a whole will be ready for that. Did anybody have what I like to call the obsessive epiphany, whereas where you're, all of a sudden you're on the internet and it's 3 a.m. and you go, oh my God, I've been doing this for five hours, nonstop, I haven't even gone to the loo. And, you, and you're reading article after article and getting more and more and more and more appalled. Anybody? Me, yes. <laughs> Tell us Definitely. About it. Um, it seemed like uh, when I first started, I was just kind of, you know, lamely interested in it. I would just 
spend an hour on a computer here and there, and I would always bring it back to question in my mind, but after I actually saw a video of it, then I became compulsive. I mean, I wanted every information on every subject that I could find that had, you know, that led me back to that. And um, it, every time I told myself, I've learned everything I can learn, it seemed like I would find something new. And I, I still continue to learn now. I mean, it's, I can still get in the subject with somebody and talk with them for hours or, you know, do research for hours or I'll find a new book and I, I really just keep learning every day. Um, I think I'm still like that now as well. Like, I, I, if you go on my Facebook page, you'll see that I have like post after post after post of stuff that I found that I think everybody should know and why don't they know this? <laughs> so yeah, I think it's, it's something that, and I tend to be that way with a lot of things, but specifically to this, you know, it just seems like um, something that everybody should know and, it, and like he was saying earlier, it's like the matrix, like why don't you know we're in the matrix? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I definitely had an uh, obsessive epiphany, and I guess I can just sort of go through that story since I've sort of touched on it briefly. Um, I was in a meditation group in Los Angeles, and uh, just I mean, the type of meditation I do, you're just sort of sitting with whatever's there. You're not trying to reach any state, um, and you, you're just sort of being present with whatever's in your body. And during that meditation, I had the word circumcision come into my mind, just seemingly out of nowhere. And I felt all my energy drain down my body to my belt. And I had this like sort of cold shake that happened. Um, and it happened more, this happened more than once. And I just was like, I have no idea where that came from. And, and since it happened more than once, I felt like I had to, you know, investigate it and start researching. And I came across the fact that, that doctors used to think that babies did not feel pain. And so they would perform the circumcision without anesthesia. Um, and I had a, I'd sort of been reading Alice Miller's works at the time, and Alice Miller is the first psychologist to really put forth the idea that early childhood trauma um, has a major effect on people later on in life. And I had a friend who, you know, she just wasn't, like, her mom was working when she was born, and she just wasn't held a lot as a child, and she would have anxiety attacks because of that and sort of had dealt with that in her own therapy. And I thought, well, if that's what you, you know, experienced just from not being held as a child, what's got to be the effect of having someone take a knife to the most sensitive part of your body at one day old. Um, and that to me was like, that was sort of the obsessive epiphany I had that started my researching because, um, you know, I knew what, what a deep effect just a very sort of uh, simple neglect it had on my friend. And I thought, you know, this is obviously stored in me in some way and I need to examine this because I had been on sort of a, a spiritual path at the time of looking at things that had happened in my past and what patterns and attitudes they'd given me. Um, so that was my obsessive epiphany. And I should add, you know, uh, one of the things that I found when I was just doing my initial research was an interview with Van Lewis, um, who's this intactivist who's, you know, 60 years old. He's this very sort of old, sweet man. And he's talk he was talking about... I'm 65. <laughs> <laughs> Is that well? I'm sorry. Sorry, John. He's gray hair. He's gray hair. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean, didn't mean to stop your, you were rolling. You're young at heart, I'm sure. Um, we can take this out in post-production. Yeah. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. That's my job. Um, but he was talking about how when he was in his 20s, he had had like this 
sort of experience with there where he just sort of like had a mental breakdown that he attributed to you know trauma around his circumcision and it was listening to that that I thought like oh I'm not the first person to feel this way there is someone else who's gone through this and it was funny because you know I, I talk about this this documentary connecting me with a lot of people um, I went and interviewed James Lowen in Canada, who's a photographer, and it wasn't until halfway through the interview that I realized that he had shot the clip that I had been watching that had helped with my initial epiphany. Um, I was like, wait a second, like, you were the guy behind the camera on that. Um, and so it's, it's been, it's, I, you know, I think, I think as much as you can, connecting with all the people in this movement has been incredibly helpful for me at least, and I, I imagine it would be helpful for others who are going through the same thing. Um, can I break the rules of chairpersonship for a second and, and tell about my personal epiphany? Yep, and then we can have it's maybe questions from the audience after that. Good idea. This is, um, I don't often tell us because quite frankly I think it's distracting and gets off of the issue and dealing with the issue in a sort of direct academic way. But I was born in New Zealand in 1946 and not circumcised. I came to the United States in 1951 and was circumcised without anesthesia, strapped down. Now, I actually have no memory of it, it's, it's curious. And George Denniston, who's the head of, uh, of DOC and for whom I work directly, said, John, we gotta get you fixed up. He said, we'll get you some really good counseling and we'll get that memory out there and you'll deal with it. And I go, George, you're crazy. I have, <laughs> when I was five years old, I was a very cagey lad. I packed that memory away really, really nicely. It's way in there somewhere and it's the opposite of Brendan's experience. I have absolutely no interest and ever going there or ever finding out whatever happened happened. And I can't undo it for a start. But it's interesting, 15 years ago, I was the, uh, the director of a sailing school, which was a summertime career. I practiced law in winter, and I, went, I sailed in the summer. Let me tell you, it was a pretty good deal. And uh, one of my sailing instructors, who now lives in Hawaii and became very wealthy, he's the guy that invented the bucket boss, that cloth thing that you put tools in in a, in a five-pound, five-gallon pail. That made him $11 million, by the way. <laughs> and then, and then he, I couldn't get him to teach sailing after that. He just was kind of <laughs> disinterested. But he, he asked me about circumcising his son, and I, I hadn't even thought about the issue forever. And, um, and I said, ah, save the money. He'll buy a car with it when he's 15, 16. Don't, don't do it. Just save it. it. I just, off the top of my head. And when he announced a month or so later that he had, in fact, circumcised his son, I had this terrible rush of guilt. I felt like a lawyer who'd missed a filing deadline in a capital case, whose client was now going to the gas chamber for my procrastination. And I just, I just was bothered by it. So I went to my mother and she said, well, maybe it's time for me to tell you your story. <laughs> so she told me the story and she said, you know, I brought you home and you hid under the bed for three days and refused food or adults and just hid. And she said, curiously enough, on the third day you walked out and never mentioned it again. I packed it away nicely. And it's still packed away, and, it, and it's going to stay there. <laughs> well, I can add, I don't think everyone needs to go through the experience I did or, like, dig the memory up. Or um, To me, you know, because the point is not of, of going through something like that is not to, like, make yourself feel bad about something in the past. It's to just handle whatever patterns that left in you so that you can, you know, let go of those and go on and find joy in your life. So I'd, I'd, I'd add that... You know, if, if it hadn't found me, I probably would not have found it. What I want to mention to you, uh, John, was uh, Dan Bollinger that reads a lot on the work of Alfred Adler, who, who then, looking at childhood trauma and why do children um, respond differently to the trauma, why are some 
males horribly devastated by circumcision. This wasn't his issue, but why are so many males devastated by circumcision and so many others? It's inconsequential. And what Adler apparently said was that the child makes a decision about how to process that and how to view that experience, whether he looks at it traumatic, you know, he makes a decision of how that, that trauma is going to affect him. It looks to me like you made this decision not to have it affect you, except to do this work. Well, <laughs> I certainly don't want to think of myself as this sort of trap that's going to get sprung one day that I'll become a serial murderer. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I prefer to think of myself as a functional adult who had a bad deal that he worked his way through in quick order. Exactly. You know, I, some people have good filing cabinets, some people don't, and we're all different. So. But it also sort of explains why, why the difference is in, in, in our reactions to trauma, at least I thought. Well, I wanted to ask the two women about your take on the trauma piece and the work that you do, because I, I think pretty much anybody who becomes an intactivist is, is reacting out of some sense that this is a traumatic thing. It's either a man who's had it done to them or a, a mother who's had it done to their children, a health professional that's been around it and seen it uh, or has blood on their hands and, and recognized that. And um, the men have talked about it, but I wondered if you could speak to where the trauma piece fits with you, if that's correct. Um, where the trauma fits with me. I, I've never experienced it, obviously, and, and um, my family, both my kids are whole. Um, but I think it was just the amount of empathy that I have. I've, I've just always been a very empathetic person to a fault. And in seeing the baby in the movie that I saw that I can still remember to this day from 2006, it stayed with me, and I, and I couldn't finish watching the movie. And the sounds, you know, stayed with me. Um, so I think that... I felt for that specific baby, and that's where it stayed with me, with that baby. Um, personally, I find um, if I'm talking to an older man, it's impossible to tell them the truth without actually hurting their feelings. Um, you can tell at which point you've, you've broken that belief, and they get very, it, it's very personal to them. They feel like they're lacking in some way, and so you can definitely see it when you do that, you know. And it's, it's very sad for me because I actually feel like just to, just to educate someone, I have to break their heart. And that is, you know, when I really started to realize how much it affects people, even if they don't automatically realize it. And the horror is that we all have to have Can I reply to that for just a second? Yeah. One of the things you should consider is this. What I mentioned in my presentation is that Cutting, cutting begets cutting. Mm -hmm. The cut become cutters. So what you should think about is not just that boy of that family. Think about all the children of that family for the next thousand years. Mm -hmm. You have severed a cultural connection. The next generation, the father will be intact and he'll have nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm. And that father, and the father, and the father, and the father. So when you sever the cultural cutting tradition of a family in 2011, you've done thousands and thousands of good deeds. That's worth remembering. Yes. Um, for the men, uh, how or when do you think it's appropriate for um, a parent that has circumcised their son to, um, I'm sorry, to talk to them about what they did to them? Mm. I have a thought if no one else does, but I feel like I'm kind of hogging the mic here. Um. 
I have no idea an answer to that question. Um, I don't, as far as timing, I, I, I don't know, like I don't have kids, I haven't had to go through that. Um, but as far as how, I would just say lovingly, and, and I, I can't really tell you anything beyond that. Um, but I think if, if the son, I think if the son knows that you love him, and that what was done was done um, out of ignorance and not neglect, that that relationship will still be there and, you know. I mean, I know, I know for example, um, there are like, the, there are a number of, I mean, I, I can speak to for my, for my own personal story that um, when I started working on this film, I got a call from my dad and he's like, so um, I was just calling to apologize for making that decision for you. And it just like came out of nowhere. And I was very surprised by it. Um, and that has gone a long way for our relationship, whereas before I might have wanted to keep my distance from him and, and that, that might have been a rift, um, for him to have the ability to admit that, you know, shows that he is absolutely the kind of person that I would still want a relationship with and want to keep in my life. Um, so I, I really can't, as far as when, I have no idea, but I can just say that whatever you do, just let your son know that you love him. I think that's an excellent answer, Bob. Yeah, very good. Uh, I, I completely second that. I think that if you do it lovingly. I had the, the, the tearful meeting with my son over Thai food about 10 years ago when he was 30 and about to have a son of his own, and uh, whom he has, my, my grandson's intact, by the way. But I think two answers to your question. One is I think the earliest you should ever really discuss that with a boy would be maybe, you could discuss it without mentioning the sexual aspects well before 14. But I think at 14, 15, 16, you'll get your highest level of forgiveness. Because the boy will function well at that age, and so you'll get, you'll get a certain degree of forgiveness for the fact that he can't believe in the damage anyway, and you probably shouldn't even tell him. But you could tell him, and I have, I've done this to good effect, uh, you could tell him about restoration, non-surgical foreskin restoration. Kids before the age of 16 don't have the discipline to actually do that. But the pitch is that you can actually re restore a good bit of sensation and, a, and, a, and the look of, a, of an intact male if you assiduously stick with the task for only a couple years at the age of 16, 17, 18, 19. I try not to counsel men under 18 for legal reasons, but over 18, it, it's all guns blazing. I tell them how it works, and, and I tell them that they'll get more benefit if they do it young when they don't think they need it than if they try to do it at 50 when they will need it, but, but uh, it'll take longer. Does that make sense? It's, an, it's actually a sort of practical little thing you can say to your child. And, and then I second once again the notion that you can say, you know, I, I, I was told that this was the best thing for you, frankly, and, and I did what I thought was the best thing on, based on the information I had. I can, I can add something on that, actually. Uh, when we interviewed uh, the, the head of Norm, he mentioned that there was actually a father and son who were restoring together. Like the dad <laughs> found out when he was 40 the harm that was done. He was, he was like... Well, we didn't know when we made that decision for you, and so he just talked about it with son, and it's like a father-son project now, which I don't know if that's a great idea. For me, that would be really weird. Um, but it is a possibility. They should document it. Oh my goodness. The case study. I kind of have, um, in a way, an opposite kind of dilemma. I have two intact sons, and my 25-year-old, I guess I've not really talked to them about why they are intact and so my 25 year old feels like he wants to have a circumcision and he hasn't really 
you know, done any research or anything. It's just kind of a peer pressure thing. I have two intact sons who are now in their 20s as well. When the younger one was 15, he came to me and said he thought he wanted to get circumcised. And so my jaw dropped on the floor. And, and I didn't know enough to, you know, I realized I needed to do some research. That's what's actually kicked me into becoming an intactivist because before it was just sort of like, well, we didn't do this and I'm fine with it. But now I had to explain to him why it wasn't a good idea. So. I went off and did four months of, and then I was an intactivist after that. But at any rate, um, I think boys in our culture, some, some men are going to take on that cultural, I'm, a, I'm different and uh, maybe this will fix the concerns that I have about, quote, being different. Um, but they need to be educated. And if they're not educated about what the functions of their foreskin is, then they're going to make mistakes. So uh, you do need to make sure that he has that kind of adequate information about you know, what he would be losing irrevocably by doing so. And then just look at the practical aspects of, you know, you know, I've heard these kind of stories many times where the girlfriend insists on it and the man gets circumcised and then they break up and that's it. It's, it's <laughs> over with. So he has to, you know, s s respect his own body and stand up for that and he needs education in order to do that. My husband says for, for women who, who want that from the you first honey. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it, it's also it's also like would she ask him to get plastic surgery like would to get his you know nose done or would he be okay telling her to get her breast augmented? There's a ring you can't return. Yeah. Well, you know, kind of the problem is, is he's <laughs> at that stage where he doesn't want to listen to mom's crazy ideas. So it's hard to educate him when he's kind of going, well, mom, this is, you know, this is different. It's, and I don't want to hear it from you kind of thing. So, and I also, you know, and I know that he doesn't really know what he's asking. He has no idea. There's... There's ways you can, if you're intact, that you can sort of try it out. Um, I know there was one researcher who was intact who, you know, he had access to um, like topical anesthesia. And so he just applied that to his foreskin and the parts that he would not have and then tried masturbating and having sex with, you know, the anesthesia still in effect. And I'll bet if your son tried that, that he would have a noticeable difference. Um, and that might make him reconsider the decision I mean, the other thing you could, he, he could do is if he even just like retracts the foreskin and lets it kernitize over time, he'll feel the sensitivity difference. So, you know, I mean, I, I would just, that might be something he's open to. Like, well, if you're gonna, before you make a permanent decision, try it out. Actually, I think I have two questions and a comment. I was going to address uh, a comment to you. There are resources online, I believe, specifically, there's a Students for Genital Integrity page, and then Intact America has a blog that's directed specifically at students. He's not going to listen to you because you're the mother and you're never right, especially right now. But <laughs> if you can get uh, the information uh, um, that's been published by students in his age group saying this information, that would probably sink in better than, if, if, than from you. And then I would agree to have, watch the, the DVD that's in the packet. That was the first con. The second con I was going to say, when I attempted to put this panel together, I wanted to have two men and two women talking about the, the impacts of circumcision in their lives. Um, it's very obvious how male circumcision affects men, obviously, um, but it's far less obvious how it affects women. But we know that it affects women as mothers, and we know that it affects them as sexual beings. Um, can you comment on how it's affected you in your lives as either one of those roles? Um, 
As a mother, not really, because like my sons are whole. Um, as a sexual person, not really. I mean, uh, to taking away those two, it's affected me in another way as a woman because of violence. Because violence begets violence, the cutters, uh, the cutties become the cutters, and and that perpetuates the cycle of violence that then gets to women later on in different forms. And so I think that once we start healing our men and taking care of our, our you know, healing our babies and our families, that that will eventually stop the violence towards women as well. Um, I I think. As far as myself and a lot of people I know, um, most women just complain of pain. And that's what really got me looking for information is just that women were saying that sex was painful. And that didn't seem, you know, like something I'd ever heard before. But um, I got curious. And it, it doesn't seem like women are really taking that and thinking, you know, maybe something's wrong with him. It seems like they're resignating it with themselves and saying maybe something is wrong with me. And um, I think, you know, that the sex is just completely different. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, will never know that. Um, so it's hard to say which problems, you know, with us all having similar experience, it's hard to compare. But um, I definitely hear things all the time that I think, well, that wouldn't be happening, you know. Um, I just, I, I can't help but wonder, like you said about the physical violence, you know, if some of the violence is just past experience and trauma and, you know, and the reason just is general lack of sensitivity and just being more forceful and more, um, yeah. you know, and aggressive. And the reason I said uh, lack of sexuality is because usually with those type of encounters, that's not really sex, that's not anything mm -hmm. sexual. Yeah. I also noticed that um, a lot of people complain that men are not interested in regular sex. They're looking for other types that would provide more stimulation. And a lot of people are upset about that. Um, I have a experience and perspective on that. My first husband was intact. My second husband is circumcised. And it's, it's different. And whereas, you know, as I mentioned to somebody else I was talking to, um, the first husband, you know, uh, lube was not really a consideration, and now it's any time you start getting a little physical, where's the lube first, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so that's made a big difference there, uh, what you were saying about it being painful. And a lot of times, um, the other person mentioned to me, we thought it was our, my fault. Did I change somehow? Did... Um, I somehow start getting dry or, or something like that, and the more I learned about how it changes sex for both, the more I, I figured out that's not what was going on. I want to thank, thank the panelists for uh, taking their grilling bravery. Yes. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com.